This is Creator Talks, episode number six, Endgame. Hi, I'm Christopher Calloway, your host for Creator Talks, and today I have not one but two guests joining us, Daniel Calban and Andrew Hines. Both those gentlemen are working on a comic book called Endgame, which is currently on GoFundMe. You can find the project there and see what that's all about, but today we're going to dig a little deeper about the project, how it all started, how Daniel and Andrew got together, and how they selected the artists to work on the book. Now, both Daniel and Andrew are contributing writers for Word of the Nerd. And as some of you may know, I used to be a contributing writer for Word of the Nerd and was on their podcast, The Comics Word. So um, I've invited Daniel and Andrew onto the show to talk about their GoFundMe project, Endgame, what the status is of that project now, and what we can expect in the near future. And so now here are Daniel Calban and Andrew Hines joining me for Creator Talks. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. I'm Andrew. I'm Daniel. Hey, tell yeah. me about the whole project. Uh, I, you said that this, when we talked last, this was uh, developed over seven years. Yeah, that's when I started the first characters. But uh, Daniel and I really came to it in uh, January of this year. Um, I had an idea, and we had wanted to do something beforehand. And, um, you know, I needed some help on it. So I enlisted Daniel uh, to help me because I knew we had similar sensibilities. And where'd you guys meet up? Um, DeviantArt. Okay. Yeah. That seems to be the place now. <laughs> it I, does. Have you met in person at all, ever? No. Well, I'm on the uh, West Coast. Right. Over here in, uh, I'm from Carmel, California, uh, Monterey. And uh, Daniel, where is it you're from again? Uh, Brooklyn. East meets West. Very good. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we, we've only spoken, um, you know, digitally. Uh, so it's been interesting. Oh, cool. So I'm bringing people together. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I just want to go back to the very inception. Um, Andrew, I know that you, you just said you brought in Daniel to collaborate, to build this out. Yeah. Uh, but the very first time this popped into your head, do you remember where you were and what like sparked that whole idea of a superhero? I was probably at home, quite mm -hmm. honestly. It was either at home uh, or in, of all things, a, um, I think it was constitutional law class because I was a uh, pre-law student at the time. Now I, I ended up getting my degree in journalism, but uh, I wanted an empire um, and they had mentioned things like, you know, these great big wars between the heroes and villains. And while they showed little glimpses of it, you never really got a whole picture as to what started it. So I just decided to make my own and just be done with the whole, like, well, when are they going to tell us more? And yeah, I also had some characters I wanted to develop like a, <laughs> quite frankly, a smarter Superman. Now, I know that you're writing this, but did you sketch any of these, like do some designs that you had in mind, something you could visualize? 
Yeah, I had some designs from places like uh, Hero Machine, and uh, it's a. Uh, there's another one called. It's a Brazilian website, uh, Fabrica de Heroes. Um, but anyway, uh, you can kind of piece together costumes and such, and that's exactly what I did. And I sent them off to uh, to get commissions done on them. And then Daniel brought some of his own flair, and we kind of worked out a little bit on, uh, you know, what the power should have, what the personality should be. Um, you know, help, he helped fine-tune a lot of it, actually. Okay. And just to give our listeners an idea of this universe of the Hero Corps and their adversaries, the Legion, just kind of paint a brief picture of that for us. Daniel had talked about it, and um, I, I know he'll have a little stronger opinion on this, but I always felt like uh, for these big destructive things, um, New York kind of always gets the short end of the stick on that. Yes, so we, do. we actually, <laughs> yeah. It, we, um, and it's always, and I like to point out that it's always Manhattan. They're too yeah. afraid to come to Brooklyn. We'll beat them up. You don't need heroes. <laughs> okay, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> Um, but seeing as I live out in California and we have, uh, in my area, we have the old, uh, Fort Ord army base right there, as well as a bunch of schools I actually decided to make it a local thing where the, uh, heroes and villains will actually be set, uh, like their bases will be in Monterey, California. Um, and if anybody out there are golfers, they'll know it by, um, it being the location of Pebble Beach um, and Carmel as the place where Clint Eastwood was a uh, the mayor in the 80s. So I decided to kind of make it real world just to kind of see how this would work in the real world, like what kind of places would be destroyed, what would still be standing. And I think we've got a lot of history there that would actually make for some pretty interesting, um, you know, fodder. Uh, later on in the book or in the series i should say well that's a great way to to start out the story i mean you know you look back at guys like stan lee when he started the marvel universe he put it in the real world he put it in new york he put it in the united states so that uh, you know you, now you have heroes in the quote real world unlike dc who has had metropolis and gotham so you're going down the same path that stan did so uh, you're in good company uh something jim Shooter also did too with his uh, valiant and defiant comic books same idea following in stan's footsteps put and a lot of people are doing that now with their comics but that's definitely the way to go so that people are able to connect with it more um, even though it's fantastical and superhero, it still feels somewhat grounded being in our universe. Is that yeah. part of your idea to get people hooked? I mean, there has to be something in a comic book that's new that is familiar yet different enough to pique your curiosity, make you want to read it, but it has to be comfortable enough that you're not afraid to enter into that universe. So what are you doing to make it an easier entry point for people? Because you've had these ideas percolating around your head for a while and you've been working with Daniel. So how are you making it familiar yet fresh for people i can give you my two cents for it and then daniel can uh, add in um you know as he wants because like i said he's adding some of his own sensibility to it so my thought was because i went to school out there and uh in monterey at csu monterey bay i have actually got one of the characters um as a history professor at that location 
Um, we've got the old army base, like the tunnels underneath being where their actual base is. So we're using local history in places, like I was saying before. And we've got another character, our smarter Superman, um, being an actual uh, professor of physics at uh, UC Santa Cruz, um, which actually has a uh, working relationship with uh, CERN over in Switzerland. So these are places that, like, their reputations will be affected in the real world if things come to light. Um, You know, you can actually see places that you would recognize being, you know, hit or destroyed or um, actually being in the comics. And another part of that actually came from uh, one of our variant covers uh, being done by a guy that's well-known on DeviantArt and at conventions um, that happens to be local. He's from Salinas. Um, And his name is Ace Continuado. Um, And his was... uh, our stand-in for New York was uh, later on in the book, um, actually in the first issue, uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul get destroyed. Our reason for that, or mine at least, was I want it to be something that you think of every now and then, but something you won't miss until it's gone. So sort of a, uh, I kind of pulled that from, do you remember Goldfinger? Oh, Yeah. Yeah, it's, it was the uh, idea of, you know, if you knew Nebraska, no one would hear about it for 50 years. <laughs> so, um, Daniel, what were your thoughts on that? Well, it's really funny because I was recently watching a video by uh, NerdSync on YouTube about uh, why I do real-world locations like New York and whatnot. And so they raised a good point. I think it's from one of the books he referenced. Which basically, no one cares if the Acme skyscraper falls or the first national bank gets robbed, but if you put in a real-world location and real-world buildings with real-world people, people tend to care more and they tend to suspend their disbelief a bit better. And it just raises the stakes a tiny bit more and it just makes the uh, big moments just give a little bit more oomph. The Battle of New York in the Avengers movie hits us because that's a real location. We see, you know, Grand Ar- we see Grand... Central Station, we see um, the Empire State Building in the background, we see the Chrysler Building. So you have all these real-world landmarks that, you know, hide in the drama, whereas, you know, the destruction of Bloodhaven in DC Comics is an infinite crisis. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's sad because it's such a big city for Nightwing and everything, but it doesn't hit us right as much in the um, kind of reaction sense compared to a real city. Yeah, you piqued my interest with something. You said you're, one of your characters is a smarter Superman. Can you elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, um, in all the Justice League books I've read, um, all the smarts seem to be um, with Batman, and they just kind of paint Superman as just the powerhouse, um, which, as I mentioned, being a uh, journalism student... Um, that always kind of stuck with me because I, I had considered myself or that profession as being the one that asked the right questions, uh, but in the battles he never seems to. I mean, yes, he's trying to be diplomatic and not use you know his strength, 
as much as possible until it's absolutely needed. Uh, but the way I thought about it was if you have all those powers um, and you know what they can do, you wouldn't want to use them uh, to create the kind of destruction that he has in the films especially. I know a part of uh, Superman, uh, the reason he's so popular is because he's supposed to be what we aspire to be. And my thinking was we shouldn't aspire to just be powerhouses. We should aspire to be um, more intelligent. And this version, uh, Omega, um, is our version of that. Um, A, he doesn't have x-ray abilities because by this point in Superman's uh, history, everyone in Metropolis would have cancer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, uh, yeah, so we figured him being actually from an alternate uh, uh, dimension, um, he would actually have come from a more scientific uh, place like Krypton was supposed to be. Um, So he would actually be more versed in science and able to try to understand some things a bit more and actually be a uh, physics professor. Daniel, did you have anything to add to that? Because I don't want to... Um, conversation. Well, here's the thing. I know that it, that Superman isn't He's usually instances in the comics where Superman does show a large amount of intelligence, like in some early issues of Grant Morrison's action run, and in the Earth One books. But it doesn't seem to be as utilized by most writers. They think it's part of the issue. That's why it probably contributes to the idea of Superman just being the powerhouse because he really is intelligent. But this needs to be lost in the whole, you know, super strength and all these awesome powers. How about the villains? Uh, who are some of the villains you have in this book? Two of the villains are um, matched up pretty well with him, uh, Omega. They do have a connection to his past, is as much as I can say. Um, but then we have a uh, some really sort of unfortunate um, villains, I mean, in and of their uh, actual origins uh, are kind of unfortunate. But um, then we have some smarter ones like uh, Dr. Shinka is the name of one of them, our uh, sort of mad scientist. The reason I picked that name, actually, um, I feel like I have to give some backstory, is I wanted the names to have some meaning. Um, and Shinka... Um, if I remember correctly, in Japanese means evolution. And his character is specifically, uh, he is an evolutionary biologist and a cybernetics expert. I know Daniel had some that he enjoyed uh, writing. So, Jinka is actually probably my favorite villain writing because he's so smarmy and so <laughs> arrogant and intelligent. It's like Doc Ock. And Dr. Doom, arrogance, heightened to an extreme. And he's mm. so wonderfully smarmy and sarcastic. And he yeah. actually delivers one of my favorite lines in response to something in the first issue, which is a kind of a bit of a foreshadowing. I won't say what it is because it's a little bit of a spoiler. Right, right. Got to pay admission for that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, you have an artist on the book. Uh, I want to know something about him. Is this also someone else that you've met through or selected through DeviantArt? Um, actually, um, 
kind of. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's the best word. Um, so we have a main artist, um, and we have two variant uh, cover artists. Um, so our main artist and uh, colorist are from Brazil. Um, we actually, they came to us, um, which was an oh. interesting thing. They, uh, they saw some of the designs that I had put up on DeviantArt, um, and they came asking to see if we needed anybody, and it just so happened that was the exact point we started looking. Something like that? Yeah, uh, Marcia Abreu. Okay, is, very good. Uh, and our colorist is uh, Adriano Augusto. Uh, now, they typically work together. And the last uh, series that they both worked on is uh, Red Sonia um, for Dynamite. They've got a name in the uh, industry already, which actually helps us tremendously. Very good. Very good. I was looking at some of the art on your GoFundMe page, and I guess uh, Marcio kind of reminds me of Mark Bagley. Um, I That's don't... exactly what uh, Daniel and I said. Like, okay. Yeah. We were looking right. back at the uh, like first arc of ultimate spider-man and i'm like this looks for some reason like mark bagley's work <laughs> and daniel goes it, it it does i didn't want to say anything to him but yeah <laughs> no no that's a compliment jeez that's great yeah I, I i hate comparing somebody to somebody else especially if they're trying to create their own style yeah that's you know, that's my hang up on it well, I, th I think most artists start out, whoever they admire, they're kind of following that style as a, as a guide. And then over time, they'll develop their own style that's unique. But it does take a while to kind of find that as you're learning the craft. And the coloring looks fantastic. Now, I'm looking at it digitally, of course. Um, and, and the coloring that's done nowadays using you know, computers and the color separation is, is so sophisticated, so much better than what we, we used to have. I mean, oh, I, yeah. I do like the older books in newsprint form because the coloring that was used then worked on newsprint because the colors would be very bright and vibrant. The newsprint would absorb some of that brightness and it would kind of mute them a bit and it looked, looked okay. But when those books were reprinted and put on like Baxter paper back in the 80s when they were trying out the new coloring techniques, it looked garish to me. It looked just terrible. And it wasn't yeah. until like Marvel went out and bought Malibu to get their color separation process that it started looking right. Um, but now you have the benefit of, of all the technology, so Augusto can do a wonderful job. I mean, it'll look great in print, but I mean, I think there's even some depth and dimension added to seeing it digitally. There definitely is. Um, we actually had a, I think it was one of the first like seven or eight pages. Um, Daniel, you might remember this. We got uh, two copies of, uh, of a page. And there was an issue between, do you want to go, you know, this, you know, 80s looking um, computer graphic, or do you want to do something more futuristic? So we got a nice choice where uh, Adriano could actually play around with the colors, because what we had was a blank screen, and he was filling things in. Mm -hmm. um, so he could add some things. You remember that one? Um, I think it was a a big map or something like that. Do you remember that, Daniel? I think so, but it's a little further back. I remember him also comparing, like, should we go with a white page or a black page with compare and contrast? And I think we went with, what, a black backing to the page? Um, 
Yeah, I, we, we had originally done that, but um, now dealing with the printing process, that's actually going to have to be going back to white. Because I actually, I found a local printer as well, so that helps our costs. Oh, okay. So it's it's someone in the U.S. then that's going to be printing it. It's it's actually local for me. He's, oh, wow. Uh, uh, he came to the local comic shop I, I shop at, and uh, that will actually be doing the local distribution for us. And he said he was looking to change his business model to becoming into comics. And, um, you know, the guys there sent him my way. And uh, we've been starting a relationship over the last uh, month or so, which will save us, you know, a couple thousand dollars, actually. And not only financially does that probably help you, but just having someone so local that you can reach out to and work with if there's any issues versus having to go to someone overseas or some bigger corporation. At least you have a little more uh, ease of communication and more control over the whole process. Exactly, yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, just to touch back again on the artist and the colors, it's great that they both tend to work together because I've seen some cases where the uh, the art looks great on a book and then they just the publisher goes out and grabs a colorist and they've never worked with the artist and it, it can sometimes mess up the art. I don't know how else to put it, but you know, in black and white it looks great, and then when you see the colors added later, it's like, oh man, something's off. Um, not in this case, though. everything seems to fit together very well, like two pieces of a puzzle. Yeah. And we've actually uh, had some luck with that where we're not working directly with them as much. We actually work through their agent okay, because um, they share one agent at the uh, company they're at. So um, also in terms of uh, language barriers, possibly, sure. um, that helps us out a lot. Yeah, I've seen a lot more Brazilian artists on the scene lately. You remember how back in the 70s they were bringing in artists from the Philippines to work on a lot of the black and white magazines, and now I'm seeing this happen. Uh, it seems to be like the latest thing. Yeah, because I know there's several people I've talked to who are Brazilian artists, and they're starting out. So I think there's a, a strong comic culture, maybe some comic art schools down there, there which is helping you know develop talent, like mm-hmm. the group is here in the United States. Ed Bennis, um Rob and Yvonne Reyes both have schools down there. And then there's several other, you know, Brazilian artists working, you know, in the big two, too. There's Marcio Takara, who did, like, an issue of Nightwing recently. The world's a little more richer for it, because it's definitely stepped up the uh, the quality of the art in some of the books. So that's that's great. Great to see. Exactly. Um, one of the things I want to ask about the series is, um, I think back to Image when they started out. And there was the explosion of the the artists now becoming the writers too, and the reason why I bring that up is I remember one of the books I read when it first came out was Wildcats, and oh yes, I love that series. That's actually part of what drove me to uh, making a team comic rather than Justice League. What that book? I mean, I know the writers had a lot in their head about the backstory of the characters, and they really thought about this and developed a lot. One thing, just my observation was, I had a little trouble getting into the book because it seemed that they knew more about the characters than I did. So much so that I wasn't quite connecting with it. Now, I, I think you've overcome some of that by you've put it in the real world, so it's going to mean yeah. more when you see things happen. I think that's one thing you've managed to overcome. That they, I don't think they did that in their books. At least not that I can recall. Maybe I'm just not remembering correctly, but is there anything else that you're doing to, to avoid falling into that? I guess it could be a common trap for a lot of writers where they're, they know the characters so well and they're reading so much into what they're making 
that they're filling in some blanks in their own heads that maybe the readers won't be able to and not connect. Um, and I'm not saying there's anything about your book that looks like a weak point, but I'm just saying I've seen this in other books and how are you avoiding that? Besides, like you had already talked about, placing it in the real world. Where we're starting it, they've been working together for 10 years before this happens. While we have some history alluded to every once in a while, it's not nearly as heavy as that was. Okay. Um, so what we do, we actually, you know, we'll have a, uh, a moment like from uh, Avengers once in a while where it's just like Budapest. You and I remember Budapest very differently. You know, that sort of thing. Like, we have some little things like that, but as we go deeper into the books, we do actually spell those things out. So you won't be always wondering, you know, what happened here. We will eventually get to those, um, you know, little things that actually make for better characters. Okay. Yeah, I mean, and I don't expect a writer to lay everything out so everything's revealed. But it, one benefit that you're starting out that way where they already have a history together but not getting too far into it so that the readers are lost is that you're not starting from square one so it would take 10, 12, 15 issues just to get, okay, everyone's together. Yeah, that's actually something that um, Daniel said early on was, you know, we want it to feel more like they actually have a sense of teamwork as opposed to it just being a bunch of um, lone wolves that happen to be stuck together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a tight-knit team Yeah, that I'm sure probably has issues like other teams as well. It's not going to be one big happy family, I, I, I would assume. There, there's definitely some uh, personalities thrown in there um, and some personal histories thrown in as well because there are some actual uh, family links okay. to them. Uh, there's like a father daughter. There's a uh, you know, there's a couple or two, um, you know, things like that where you can't really get away from that in reality. So I didn't see a reason to not put in at least a uh, familiar or a familial or romantic relationship here and there. Now this is a, a four part series that you have developed that you're working on. Um, yeah. Now, do you have, and I, we're taking this one step at a time, of course, you're not going, you're just, you're concentrating on that series, but do you have a grand plan, uh, a la MCU, you know, that, that stretches out several issues, in their case, several years, that you kind of have in your own minds, both of you, some direction of where this is going to play out, uh, you know, the next series or the next two years? We actually do have several things like that we're working on. Um. Daniel is working on a uh, a series a solo series for one of the characters right now, um, in which they actually bring in a uh, a sort of sidekick for him eventually, um, and then you know I've got one of those as well where I've got a uh, sort of Nightwing or Batman esque uh, character um, that's doing his own solo series um, and trying to join the team. So we've got a few irons in the fire. Uh, we've got all the writing done, obviously, uh, for this. And it's just a matter of getting people um, into it and trying to see, um, you know, trying to make our audience, really. Okay. Yeah. And how far along would you say the artists are with the project? They are, um, we finished the first full uh, book. 
uh, obviously. And then we've got seven or eight pages into the second book. Yeah. Right can... now. And Daniel, what's the um, the release schedule? I mean, would you say every month, every couple of months? I, I, since I know that it's still being worked on, so I didn't know what kind of pacing you were looking for for the release of the books. Um, I'm thinking maybe every month or so, or every two. Okay. Yeah, about every two to three. I mean, yeah, I'd say eight to ten weeks. And how's the project going through GoFundMe? How are you? Where do you stand right now? And when would you expect to see the first book? Um, I'll I'll be honest. We aimed a little high. Um, we've got two thousand uh, dollars right now, out of what I am uh, actually put in as eight thousand. We're still working on funding. Um, we've got a good amount enough to uh, hit a few runs. Um, of uh, publishing so doing you know 50 at a time not uh not bad we just want to make sure we get a local market saturation first and then it'll be going over to daniel uh but we also have uh digital copies coming through that you'll be able to buy probably early to mid january okay is that something you're going to have out through comicology or through another channel yeah we're actually going to submit through comicsology as well as another channel Okay, so, uh, we've coming our bases. We've got a few options. Okay, no, that's a great idea because I've discovered books just looking through Comicology browsing, and if you know the cover and the blurb catches my eye, it's very easy to sample something that way. Just you know, spend a couple bucks and try it out. And I've many books I've been hooked on just by doing that that I would have never heard of otherwise, other than just browsing through Comicology, like you know, new releases. Now, why did you pick GoFundMe in place of, say, something like Kickstarter, which is what a lot of people who do comics tend to use? What was the the, the benefit for you for using GoFundMe instead? Um, the process for Kickstarter was just longer and more involved than we really had time to get into. Really, that's the reason. Um, we just didn't have the time to set up everything for, uh, for Kickstarter, whereas we did for uh, GoFundMe. It was just a much more streamlined process. And what have you learned so far with this project? I mean, what are some of the things that you feel went very, very well to date? And what are the same things, some things that you would do differently now that you've been doing it for a while and you're trying to meet your goal? I know that it's much easier to write a story than to build a brand. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I agree with you there. <laughs> That's very true. Um, I've also learned that I've got a really good... Uh, and collaborative writing partner and Daniel. Um, and we're looking to actually create a company um, here in the next, uh, or actually get the company fully started here in the next month or so. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Yeah. It's uh, the company name we chose because of the uh, difference, um, you know, um, across the U.S. is by Coastal Comics. And what made you decide to do that? We just felt like, Rather than trying to submit everything to uh, other companies, it would just make more sense. I want to see if uh, it actually seemed to make more sense to get it all um, out there in one place instead of submitting multiple things uh, to you know another company, and maybe they would take you know three out of ten of our ideas. So it just didn't make sense to put in all that work, and then maybe get it through. Are you th- are thinking along the same lines, Daniel, that you don't want to lose creative control and not see your vision come to light and have someone else just cherry-pick what they like? 
pretty much, yeah, it's also easier to do it ourselves for their own company versus going to Image and Dark Horse. Well, they also have, you know, all these specifics that it's kind of like gatekeeping. So this way we can do our own quality control. We can do our own thing. Now, one of the reasons I like doing these interviews is I get to know more about the creators themselves, and I want the audience to know more about them, too. I mean, rather than just names and credits, and that's one of the wonderful things about podcasts and social media. We get to know the people behind the books. And for each one of you, I would like to know, when in your life was that turning point where you said, you know what? I want to make comics. I'm going to do it. It went from just being a wish to being, I'm going to do this. Can you remember where you were and what you were doing? Um, Daniel, you go ahead because I want to hear okay. this. Back in June, <laughs> so exactly what I was doing. It was 2010. We just had this huge blizzard that hit us in the winter of 2010. I'm home from college. And I'm like, you know what? I want to start writing a Superman movie. That's how the, you know, blues I got, you know, various stuff together, started writing. And then shortly after that, I went, okay, I want to write a Batman movie. And it kind of snowballed from there to, you know what? I have these ideas for a character in my head, and I would like to work for DC, and just kind of snowball too. I want to write comics, and at the time I was like, I wanted to be a film director, and naturally shifted to, you know what, a comic book is a 22-page movie every month. <laughs> so I kind of went from wanting to be a film director, so I kind of wanted to make a film superhero, to I want to write superhero comics, and hmm. comics in general. So it was like a weird metamorphosis that just sprung from being kind of trapped at home during a blizzard. <laughs> okay. Well, in my part of California, we don't have blizzards, so I didn't have that opportunity to just sit and write. Um, actually, Wildcats is how I got into comics in the first place. I'd always been interested in those, and I, I hadn't seen anything for a long time you know, in that space since they discontinued Wildstorm in, I think it was 2011. My origin, actually, uh, was wanting to, like Daniel, write something like that, but... It's a little further back to say an exact origin of when I wanted to. I knew I wanted to do it. Um, I was probably ten or twelve, and it was the very beginning of Mrs. Doubtfire that got me into doing it. If uh. you remember that scene where he's actually Robin Williams is is doing all the voices for the Looney Tunes sort of characters. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And it was my first thought, like. You can get paid to do that, <laughs> um, which snowballed into. If you can do that, like there must be somebody who's out there writing, like whose job it is to write these things. Like there must be somebody who's submitting things to these companies instead of, you know, you don't just pop up in a company like that. Um, you have to work for it, so. What I did was, in college, I started out as a pre-law student, and then I got into um, journalism and media studies, is uh, what my final major was. And during that time, during that transition, um, I started, you know, writing down things, and um, I started doing some character design work, um, you know, little redesigns to characters that I liked. A year and a half ago, um, Daniel and I started uh, doing sort of what he was talking about. We were trying to make a uh, a script for DC based on, it was a team up between uh, 
Nightwing and some of the like Batman family characters, and somehow Grifter got in there just because I thought they would have an interesting relationship. When that fizzled out, that's when we really started on doing this. So that's my long way around of how I got into it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Hey, you know, when I um, I interviewed you for Word of the Nerd, it was in writing, and one of the things you had said was that you are doing this comic book, each of you, for you. Uh, you're writing it for yourselves, much like Kevin Smith, when he makes a movie, he makes it for him. And hopefully everybody else enjoys it, and hopefully the things that influenced him in making his movie, and hopefully for you the things that influenced you writing your book are the same things other people like as well, and you'll find your audience. So would you agree? I mean, this is for you. You're not trying to fit into somebody else's mold, which is probably why you're keeping it under your own company. Exactly. Um, You know, I have a lot of friends that, you know, we like a lot of the same things, and we've always talked about – how we would do this, um, you know, what we would like to see. And I was finally just like, you know what? Screw it. I've, I've got these ideas in my head. There's no reason I shouldn't put them down on paper. I'm going to make this. And that's basically what I went out and did. I mean, I, I didn't know if I was going to find somebody to write with me. I didn't know if I was going to, um, you know, even find an artist for it. But you know what? Why not start the process? You know, a lot of people have an idea, they want to do something, and they dream about it, and somebody else does it, and they go, oh, well, I, I had that idea, you know, but you know, you took the plunge, you took the first step, and that's probably the hardest step for anyone starting out something new, especially on their own, is just making that first step, and then you're ready to go, but, you know, a lot of people just think about it and don't actually do it, so, you know, I'm looking forward to see how it all turns out, um, you know, something I wanted to ask, too, along the lines of where you wanted to, when you decided you first wanted to get into comics, and this is something I certainly remember, but, you know, where were you and what was the very first comic that you read? That I read was probably Spider-Man, but the first one that I remember, like, hitting home and being a really good character that I liked, it was actually two at one. It was uh, Wildcats number one. Mm-hmm. That I found a couple years later because it came out in 1991 or 92 from Image. Um, That's the first time I remember an artist, Jim Lee. Um, And then that same year he started X-Men, the relaunch of that. Uh, But the first one where I remember the writing and I remember the character, I think it was a Green Lantern and uh, Green Arrow Flash team up because it was a three-parter um so it was kyle rayner as the green lantern connor hawk as a uh, green arrow and uh wally west as flash fighting um sonar and dr polaris on a cruise ship like this is all taking place out at sea you know um and it was actually a really good thing because it was also the first time I saw a team really come together even though they didn't always necessarily like each other um it was in those early days where uh Kyle and Wally knew that they had a uh, legacy to live up to but didn't necessarily like the other person so they were forced to team up together but it actually in this instance really ended up solidifying uh, their relationship, actually. Okay, this could be very lame because the first comic I remember having and owning 
was a Betty and Veronica Digest I found lying on the Prospect Park West. <laughs> um, then, then that was probably a preschool one I just found it lying down there. Um, but the first comic I remember seeing it was I was in Brooklyn Heights on a little kid by three or four. And I see these two older kids reading a Superman comic, and I'm really puzzled by this because it shows Superman, but something is not quite right. It was actually the introduction of Cyborg Superman, and they mm. told me that the real Superman had died, but this might be his replacement. And I'm like, that can't be Superman. He's weird. He looks evil. <laughs> so behold, of course, I was right. Like, like when a little kid knows this, you know, you're playing, you know, that's to be your sign. Um, but my first real superhero comics I remember reading by myself is my dad's old Silver Age comics that he kind of gave to me. That, and he had to dig in my grandparents', you know, various storage areas, my grandparents' house to find them. And basically what was left after so many years of my grandmother, you know, selling off this, that, and the other. And, you know, they're not in the great condition. They're certainly not in great condition now. Because I, you know, kept rereading them as a kid. Um... But they have some milestones like the Silver Age Justice League origin, the original Teen Titans team up, uh, the introduction of the Crime Syndicate, which just kind of had that rebirth with Forever Evil through Dark Side War. So it's like, it, I don't realize this until several years later that I had several milestone issues. But unfortunately, because of the conditioning, and I can't really sell them. So they're sentimental to me. Okay. Hey, look, it, Daniel's fine because some of my first comics that I read were Archie. Uh, you know, that's what I was given. And and then later on, much like yourself, I was given books that were beat up. They had different covers on them. They were just trash. I still have them, but they were superhero books. Yeah. They were Marvel. And that's when I was like, oh, wow, what's this? But yeah, it was the Archie that I started with. That's was, I remember that being probably the first thing I saw, but it wasn't until that very different, very exciting, colorful superhero stuff hit me that I, I was just sucked into it. So, yeah. yeah the, part of the issue was my parents didn't want me reading comics as a little kid. They wanted me just reading books. Uh-huh. And so I'm weird. It's like, because as a little kid, I read all these you know great things of literature now on in my, you know, mid to late 20s and just reading comic book after comic book. Um, so it's kind of a weird universe of how things should be done. But it's like, it's also probably because I was born, you know, in 89. So it, I was born just a couple years before the comic book, you know, crash. And, you know, mm. well, you know, we were lived. And of course, when I was like, you know, in mil, late elementary school, middle school, you know, they were still selling comics, you know, in bodegas and grocery stores, but ever since, you know, but then after a while, because of Diamond's, you know, policy, you know, the only selling comic book stores. So I kind of lost touch with, you know, many comic books that were going on at the time. Yeah, the same. Yeah. The uh, the ones I remember picking up were in a little grocery store. And then, yeah, that policy change happened at Diamond. And I had to search for one for a comic shop here. And then we that one closed down and another opened up and it was another year or two before I found that one again. And that's the one I go through now and actually a buddy of mine now owns it. Um, so I've, I've got a good working relationship with the right people around here. It seems like. I will say I do have one. Like, two, I still have some of the comics I got from the grocery store that's right across the street from my house. And you know, one of them is, is a really 
cool, creepy image of Lex Luthor being Jokerized because during Joker's last laugh. Ooh. Oh, wow. And it's a really creepy picture of him just having this really sickly, nasty grin. And it's really funny because he's president of the United States at this time. I know, scary thought in terms of reality. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, there's this, and it just shows him just rather kind of him kind of like descending further further into madness. The part he's just rockets through Smallville on a train, you know, giant slogans, and it ends up being his two Jokerized bodyguards, uh, Mercy and uh, what was the other one? Because everyone knows Mercy Grace, everyone forgets the second one. Who are, by the way, still Jokerized, helping Superman having to take down Lex. And actually, mm. that's just before, um, I mean, actually, that's when Pete Ross had to take over for a time. Because of the oh, Joker's, yeah. wow. you know, trying to just spread all this chaos because before he dies. Because at the time he thought he had cancer. Yeah, Daniel, I'm sorry. I just want to go back to one thing you mentioned about, you know, reading the comic books and your parents wanted you to read books, you know. I'll tell you, I mean, I never discourage my kids from reading comics. In fact, I, for my daughter, I started buying her Spider-Girl just for her to read. I enjoyed it. That was Tom DeFalco wrote that one. And uh, then after a while, she's like, do you have any more? And she wanted to read more of them. And then eventually, as she got older, she started reading books, paperback books. And then, I mean, they weren't like, you know, scientific books or anything like that. They were still fantasy, but she upped the game and went into just reading prose. Uh, so, you know, same thing for my kids now. My son, you know, he wants to read comics. I'm reading comics. And at some point, because I was the same way, I read comics. But then later on, I started just eating up paperbacks and just started reading stuff like Conan and um, you know, it just, it kind of sparks you into reading more. So I would never discourage that. Any parent to ever discourage I know, that. I know. It's, uh, it's, just, it's just weird. I think it's, I'm going to be like a Jew here. I'm going to blame my mother for it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I am Jewish. So I can get away with this. Um, but it also, you know, I was reading, you know, going to California when I was a little kid and reading uh, Drake to the Center of the Earth and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So I was hmm. still kind of reading genre fiction. I'll be in, you know, books you wouldn't expect a kid that's going to, like, seven or eight to be reading at the time. Yeah, but, I did the same thing. Of the, of the books out today, I mean, I'm sure you have a lot of books that you're reading, a lot of favorites. But for each of you, if you could pick, like, your top three that you really enjoy, and being writers because of the writing probably, and of course the art too because it helps tell the story. But what would you say are your top three that you really enjoy that other people should be reading too? Because there's really a lot there. There's something that you really like about it. And what are the three? What do you like about them? Uh, is this comics or this book book? Yeah, you know, both. Um, I've got a top three, and it includes both, actually. Okay. Um, the best, like, actual book book I've read recently was uh, John Grisham's Rogue Lawyer, just because it painted a great uh, character picture, um, and it was so... Like, it was kind of far out in left field for um, him to write something outside of a courtroom. Um, and it goes against the grain of, uh, you know, normal society, which <laughs> you find a lot of in uh, in comics. Um, Brad Meltzer's Identity Crisis. It's essentially a superhero murder mystery involving, like, the entirety of the JLA. Mm. Um, and... Like it involves everyone from the elongated man to um, 
you know, Hawkman and Hawkgirl. Um, um, really, everybody is pulled into it, including all the old hero, uh, villains like Dr. Light um, and, you know, people that you associated with lower tier uh, groups like the Teen Titans. Um, and then I think the other one, Batman uh, Court of Owls. Okay. That was a great run and really the thing that set up uh, the last few years of Batman series. For book book, I choose The um, the Alienist by Caleb Carr. It's a turn-of-the-century murder mystery focusing on a alienist, basically a guy who studied uh, pathology and psychological abnormalities as he tries to, under the orders of then-Commissioner of Police Teddy Roosevelt, to stop a murderer. Another book read, because I'm trying to do top four here. Another good book read is the um, early Conan stories by Robert E. Howard. Excellent. Very good. Which are really good sword and sorcery and great adventure pieces. Um, comic book-wise, uh, there's two. There's Batman Hush, which is basically mm. a, a celebration of all things Batman. You Forgot know, Batman that one for a second. I think of robbing all the villains. And it's like a real fantastic, you know, celebration of all things Batman and a really cool mystery. And finally, I'm going to say uh, Descender by uh, Dustin Lemire and Dustin Nguyen. It's a really good science fiction space fantasy series, which also asks the question of what it means to be human. Excellent choices, all of them. And I must say for myself, the Conan books, I read all those, the whole series. They were collected uh, as a trade set back in the 70s, I think back in the 60s, but I picked them up back in the 70s, and they had like 1 through 12 or 13 or something, and they had Robert E. Howard stories and others partial stories that were finished by other authors so yeah that's definitely uh, that was one of my entry points into reading paperbacks um no excellent choices all of them uh, i appreciate you sharing those with, with me and with the audience um now about yourselves besides what you're doing with endgame other work uh daniel you are writing also for word of the nerd i'm an alum yep. so tell us about that basically i write a lot of news articles um Give a couple of reviews and a couple of editorials from time to time. I um, also write a webcomic of Eagle, which is a Wild West kind of vigilante tale. Okay. And uh, Andrew, anything else that you're working on that we need to know about? Um, as you said, I am actually writing uh, Forward of the Nerd as well. Um, and I, was, I actually did an interview recently with uh, the creators of The Few, um, which is an image book and also am in the process of reviewing uh, a comic book adaptation of Beowulf um, which is actually kind of fascinating for me it's actually the oldest um, story in the English language um, it's actually over a thousand years old uh, from Old English I would call it the English version of um Hercules or Gilgamesh, but I mean, just something that old coming into comics um, is kind of amazing uh, to me. But other than that, um, we've just got the uh, books we're working on now and trying to get those done, and um, that's about it. Okay, well, very good. So, uh, folks should look for Endgame soon. 
And they should, more importantly, back that book so we can make this come to light, make this a reality, make it happen. And that's on GoFundMe, and you can find Endgame there. And in the meantime, until that comes out, you can find both Andrew and Daniel's work on Word of the Nerd. So look for their byline. They'll be reviewing. They'll be writing. So check it out. It's definitely worth reading. Gentlemen, anything else you'd like to share with everyone? It is actually a local thing where you can come from wherever. Um in my area, in uh, the Central Coast, we will in uh, February be having a, uh, and I'll be selling copies of uh, Endgame there, a uh, Central Coast comic or pop culture expo is the name of it, um, and it'll be in Salinas, California, uh, close to the uh, Steinbeck Museum, actually. Oh, very good. So that'll be uh, the 13th and 14th of uh, February this coming year. Excellent. So for those in the area, there's something to check out. For those of you not in the area, there's another reason to go to California, especially us on the East Coast where it's going to be cold and miserable. That's the way to sell it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you both very much. I wish you the best of luck. All right. That was my discussion with Daniel Calban and Andrew Hines and their project Endgame. You'll want to check that out under GoFundMe. So just go to GoFundMe.com, look up Endgame, and you'll see that project and how you can contribute and help them reach their goal to raise enough funds to launch that miniseries. I hope you're enjoying the episodes that I'm bringing you of Creator Talks, where I'm talking to creators that you've probably heard of and know of that have been veterans in the industry, and also new creators who are coming up with new projects. That'll help inject some fresh blood into the industry, something else for others to build upon in the future, and help create more diversity in comic books, and hopefully create something that you will like if you're a long-time comic book reader or a lapsed reader, and it brings you back into reading comic books. And I'd like to know what you think of Creator Talks and the guests that we're bringing you each week. Send me your thoughts, your comments, your suggestions, and most importantly, your criticisms, because I can't get better without your feedback. Now, you can reach me at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod on both Facebook and Twitter. And please visit my website, creatortalks.com, where I have archived interviews, both video and in writing. And you can see the links for my iTunes feed and for my Google Play feed to download and subscribe to Creator Talks. I know you have a lot of podcasts to choose from, and I thank you for choosing this one. For Creator Talks, I'm Christopher Calloway, and I'll be back next week with a fresh episode.